If you're offended by the words on this podcast, you'll be mortified by the words in the legal profession. Hello and welcome to episode 308 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Today on the show, we talked about a lot of things. We finally wrapped up an answer to your light bulb brain teaser. <laughs> yeah, the brain teaser has been solved, not by Ben, but by other people who wrote into the show. Uh, we had a pearls versus turds on um, a pretty in-depth uh test day routine warm-up routine yeah Uh, we talked about whether that was a good idea or a bad idea we had a whole bunch of stuff from the email um who is and who is not considered a urm what else did we talk about we oh we got an update from mary about her uh 16 point jump in LSAT score, which then put a hold on her score, right? Yeah. That weird mysterious hold that happened to June exams does at least anecdotally seem to be related to people who increase their score a lot. Yep. We talked about the bar, how it's a scam. (laughs) We did. Uh, and just a whole bunch of other stuff from the, uh, from the mailbag. Cool. All right. Well, this will air on Monday, July 26th. Uh, the August LSAT's coming up in a few weeks here on starting on Saturday, August 14th. The deadline for the October LSAT is Wednesday, October 25th. Which means scores for August will not be out before you have to register for the October exam. That's true. So if you're in doubt, just register. It's worth it. Um, let's begin. Uh, we're going to jump into this brain teaser that you gave me a couple episodes ago, I feel like. Yeah, we left and people hanging. Everybody's all mad emailing, where's the where's the answer? <laughs> we did also get um, a bunch of responses, uh, guesses to the solution. Although, it's not really a guess. Right. You Once you know the solution, it's an obvious solution. Um, yeah. It is correct. So the brain teaser, again, was basically you start in one room. There's three switches, light switches, in the room. You then go to another room. The rooms are totally separated. You can't see from one room to the other. You go into the other room. There's three light bulbs in that room. And the trick is identifying which switch goes with which light bulb. Now, you can only go one way. So once you leave the room with the switches, you don't get to go back into that room. Um, And once you walk into the room with the light bulbs, you should be able to, in about five seconds, tell which uh, bulb goes with which switch. Um, Ben, were you able to solve my light switch puzzle? No. I I even diagrammed it out. I was like, (laughs) there's got to be a way to figure this out. Nathan did while he was sleeping. So... uh, I diagrammed, you know, the four options. All three light switches are on. Very methodical. Uh, Yeah, two are on, one is off, one is on, two are off, and then three are off. And I was like, but how the hell? Yeah, you can obviously identify with certainty one of the switches. If you leave one on, well, then that's the one that goes with that switch. Mm -hmm. If you leave one off, then, well, that's the one that goes with that switch. But you can't differentiate between the other two, right? That's right. That's, That's the problem I kept running into. So eventually I turned to good old Google. (laughs) <laughs> oh, so you did cheat finally. You couldn't handle it I anymore cheat. and I you cheated. Like, I, I just can't de- deduce uh, <laughs> the process here. Yeah. Well, I'm about to give the solution. Um, okay. Chris was my favorite of the, uh, he explained it efficiently. 
He said, I'm listening to this episode on a long drive. Uh, I'm not sure if you wanted answers, but here goes. You turn one bulb on, call it bulb one, and wait five minutes. Then you turn it off and turn on light two. You go down the hall and you see light two is on. Then you feel bulbs one and three. The hot or warm one is bulb one and the cold one is bulb three. And Chris says, do I get to go to law school now? Um, I don't know that get to is really the right way to phrase that. But yes, Chris, you uh, have correctly solved the uh, the puzzle. Um, if you have uh, more brain teasers, please send that in to uh, help at thinkinglsat.com. Have you asked, Ben, did you ask any of your kids the brain teaser? No, I didn't. In part because I was slightly disappointed with this answer. I mean, I understand <laughs> that it works, oh, but there is... <laughs> right, here's my issue. Okay, so when I moved into this house, I replaced all my lights with LED lights. And to my yeah. astonishment, they do not. Correct, yeah, because yeah, freaking lasers. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that is true. Um, it would be a major hint if you, if we specified incandescent bulbs. Yeah, um, it would be a big hint. You'd be like, hmm, yeah. why those? Right. If I said incandescent specifically, you would start thinking along those lines. Um, anyway, that's the uh, solution. If you have more uh, puzzles for Ben, please email them to help at thinkingelsat.com. We'll see if we can stump, stump him on the show. You ready for Thanks. this Pearls versus Turds? Yeah, let's do it. So Pearls versus Turds is where we take uh, wisdom from the internet or the world or wherever you somehow came across it, maybe even your dreams, and we assess whether the advice you heard is good or bad. The scoreboard as of today is 15 Pearls, 51 Turds, and 23 Ties. Uh, again, ties are just probably not things we would share in class, uh, so not great. Um, yeah, anyway. distractions, you know, like it's, it's like where we go, eh, all right, sure. But I yeah. wouldn't bother anybody with that. Yeah. So yeah, the scoreboard is running like really bad against, uh, good advice on yeah. the internet. Yeah. Anyway, you want to read this one from Kevin? Sure. Yeah. Kevin writes, hi, Ben and Nathan praise the demon. I cannot thank you guys enough for your help and expertise on the LSAT. I'm finally reaching consistency in the low to mid 170s and I'm eager to slay the August LSAT. Slay. I haven't heard that one before, actually. I highly recommend Demon Live, especially since it has allowed me to focus on my specific weaknesses in reading comprehension. In addition, I think my consistent routine and improved mentality before taking practice tests has helped me tremendously. Or helped tremendously. Several months ago, I would jump into a practice test without any mental stimulation or preparation. Okay. Since I started using Demon Live, I've been taking the proctored tests on Saturday while incorporating a faithful routine. Uh, I don't know what that routine is. Well, he's about to tell you. Okay. On the day of the practice test, usually at 9 a.m. since I'm on the West Coast, I wake up two hours early, shower, eat, and read various news articles to warm up my brain. Then I go through three to five LR questions and a logic game before finishing with a 30-minute motivational music session so I can feel pumped for the test. 
I always listen to the same playlist. I strive to be in the zone, just like a professional athlete would getting off the team bus. I'm here to work and to win, and with this routine and the demon, I've improved tremendously. Instead of scoring in the 166 to 168 range, I'm now easily scoring in the 172 to 175 range. With all of that being said, do you guys think this is a pearl? I know there is a ton of bad advice out there, and I do not want to add to the heaping piles of shit wisdom. <laughs> wisdom is in scare quotes. Please feel free to share my name on the show. Da, 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 da. Okay, thanks, Kevin. Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, it sounds like it's working okay for Kevin. Sounds like Kevin is like optimistic about it, which great. Yeah. If you're optimistic about something, then good. Optimism is good. Um, that said, would I ever do that? No. And would I really recommend it? No, I, I can't give that a pearl because it's a very precious two hour lead up. I, I feel like it has the unintended consequence of giving the test more power than it actually really deserves. Like you're giving it too much respect. Kiss of death on the golf course. I'm sorry for the continue every time golf analogies, but it's the only thing I'm like halfway good at athletically. So it's the only thing I talk about, but you know, man, if you sit there and obsess about how hard a hole is or how hard a golf course is, and you just extensively plan and plan and plan and rehearse it in your mind and think about exactly what you're going to do on the day of the tournament, shit just feels different. Yeah. And you've, you've like built it up so much in your mind. This one I can think of right now, like a couple shots on these golf course. Like I, I play this one tournament in Santa Barbara every year and there's this one shot that you have to hit and no amount of like planning is going to, you can practice, you can practice that shot. Sure. But like pumping yourself up to hit it is the exact opposite of what you really need to be doing. I think, you know, like you got to just kind of let it go on yeah. the day. So I don't know. Kevin has, you know, says he's improved from high one sixties into the mid one seventies. And that's awesome. My hypothesis though, would be that where that's really coming from is just from a better understanding of the actual questions. I don't think that his LeBron James pump up routine before the test is like really what's responsible for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the easy test for a pearl, right? Would we say, oh, 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 class, I want to take a break and I want to tell you about something. I'd like you all to get up two hours before the test. Shower, Shower read, eat, read. read various news articles. Yep. And specifically, I'd like you to do three to five LR questions. I'd like you to do one logic game. And then I'd like you to listen to a 30-minute playlist. <laughs> we're, we're just never going to say that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, th I think when I'm trying to consider this as fairly as I can, I think that there is some science. I don't know what the science is behind routines. There is power in having a bedtime routine. For example, getting your kids to go to bed, getting yourself to fall asleep. Like if you always like kind of wind down in the same way, you're more likely to fall asleep. But does that mean that you need to do this? <laughs> 
And people can get obsessed with routines, like you're saying, and get concerned when they don't follow them exactly. Like what happens if he wakes up uh, 30 minutes late, doesn't have time to do a couple of these things in his routine, and now he feels like, oh, I didn't get to do my full routine. Somehow you're not going to be good enough or ready enough for the test. Unlikely, but you may think that. Yeah, I... I, I, it's definitely not for me a pearl. I would not, I would never recommend that anybody do this. It's extensive. I feel like it's giving the test more respect than it really deserves. I mean, the thing you have to do, like you do have to take your prep seriously. You have to, you have to study consistently for, you know, an hour a day for three months or more. Yeah. So you do have to take that commitment to preparing for the test you have to take that very seriously but on the actual day of the test i think more people are going to fail on the side of taking it too seriously yeah you know that that's where all the anxiety and everything comes from on on the day of the actual test you've got to just find that sort of easy flow state and you've got to just kind of like let yourself perform you got to get out of your own way and so I just worry that with this, it's, it's so specific. It's so particular that it makes me think that, you know, I don't know. I could see somebody like this deciding on the official day to even do a better routine. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I just, I worry what's going to happen when you hit the first bump in the road. Like it's not going according to plan a hundred percent. Yeah. You know, that like fourth leg of the triathlon that Luke was talking about where it's like, well, uh, what we really need to do is just like, kind of like plan for bad shit might happen and be good enough at the test that we're going to be able to just kind of like shake it off and move on to the next one. Yeah, I don't no, know that it, pumping up is what I'm looking for, really. Yeah. What you only have to do is sit down, start the section and whatever question is first that's your job right then and there nothing else nothing else matters and then once you're done with that question you go to the next question and that's your job and nothing else matters it doesn't matter what kind of pumping up you did before you got into the test it doesn't matter how many questions are left in the section your job is to answer that yeah. question as best you can i also think that the easy questions are so easy that they kind of like give you your own warm-up I just, I mean, like Kevin is warming up before the warm up, before the warm up, right? He's got the mm -hmm. news articles, then the music pump up session, and then the, or sorry, the other way around, the articles, then the LR questions, then the game, then the music pump up session. And it's like, meanwhile, I don't know, if you get good enough at the content of the test, I feel like you could just be like, okay, ready, start, start official LSAT. <laughs> and then there's like <laughs> one question in your face and you just go, Okay, and you just figure it out. Yep. Calmly get it right, and there's your warm up. I don't know. Yeah. If you have a thanks, Kevin. Thanks for writing in. Um, Ty, don't take it too seriously. Maybe that's our one piece of advice for you. You don't necessarily have to stop this. It seems to make you happy, but don't take it so seriously. Maybe even shake it up. Right. A couple days, drop the LR questions in the games. See how well you do. <laughs> Drop the music a day. Let it let it deviate from the norm because these things don't matter. Yeah. If you're so wedded to this that you're like, oh, I have to get my 30 minutes of music, that's 
That sounds like a problem. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to like debunk Kevin's magic feather, you know, like he's going to fall out of the sky now because his the thing that he thought was this magical, you know, but I mean, dude, there's no way in hell that that's responsible for that seven or eight point increase that you're reporting here. Yeah. Like, it's just not, you, but that's good news. The seven to eight points that you've improved, Kevin comes from, you understand the test better now. That's why you're scoring better. And it's not, yeah. it ain't the routine. It's the, you are better at the test. Cool. If you have a pearls versus turds question that you'd like to email us, email help at thinkingelsat.com. You can also find us on social at thinkingelsat. Let's jump into the mailbag. What do we got? Yeah. Um. Hey, everybody, you please submit questions for the mailbag. Uh, it's help at thinkingelsat.com. You can ask us literally anything and uh, you might find yourself on a future episode of the show. We're, we're happy to answer whatever random mail you send in. Um, we're, we, we're happy to speculate about stuff. So this first one I think is going to require a little bit of speculation. Maybe you know stuff about it. It says, hi guys, I found out about your podcast not too long ago and already love it. Um, as I was listening to one of your episodes, I heard Nathan mention URM after checking the changes and after checking the changes it would make on my scholarship offers, according to your scholarship estimator, I decided to Google it since I had never heard about it, which is kind of surprising. Um, Anyway, URM stands for underrepresented minority, and yep. um, you do absolutely get a boost in law school admissions if you check that box. Um, the scholarship estimator that Stephanie is talking about is at lsatdemon.com slash scholarships. We have aggregated all the ABA 509 data, and we can you can put in an LSAT and a GPA, and you can see what kinds of scholarships you might be able to get. Um, if you're at all serious about law school, you have to go check the scholarship estimator. It'd be crazy not to. Anyway, um, Stephanie is reporting here that when she checks and unchecks the box, her results change. She says, considering the fact that Brazilians make up about 1% of the U.S. population, would I be considered an underrepresented minority? Just a little background. I am full Brazilian, moved here when I was 17. After finally getting my green card in January of 2021, I decided to follow my dream of actually going to law school in this country. My current GPA, unfortunately, is 3.2. So by looking at those scholarship offers, uh, the changes to those scholarship offers after adding the URM, I definitely felt the need to ask you guys, would I qualify for URM? Or would it make more sense to write a diversity statement? Want to take that last bit first? Yeah. Uh, I would write a diversity statement and I think you're going to qualify as a URM. Um, I am by no means an expert on this and it doesn't sound like you're an expert on it either, Ben, but my sense is that it depends on how you identify. Mm -hmm. Um, you were literally born in Brazil. You're full Brazilian, whatever that means to you when they ask you if you're an underrepresented minority, I mean, so I did one quick Google, Ben. Yeah. I, I saw a Google snippet uh, and what the Google snippet said, this could be right or wrong. I don't know. I'm just reporting what I learned from the internet. Um, but because Brazil is in Latin America, you are Latinx if you're Brazilian. 
and again, I think it's like, if you want to be right, if you would like to identify that way, you have grounds for identifying that way. Yeah. It's not crazy. And they're not going to question you. I doubt they're going to question you. But um, I, one thing I, I didn't realize, well, I mean, I knew this, but you know, they speak Portuguese in um, Brazil. So sure. you are not Hispanic. Okay. Because that's a Spanish language thing. But then mm. I also believe I know. Portuguese is so close to Spanish. I guess I don't. But totally you can understand. be you can be from Spain and identify as Hispanic and actually not get the diversity bonus for whatever reason. Because it's not Latinx. Complicated. We don't know shit about it. <laughs> but my I think we're on the same page, though, here, which is if you identify yeah. as Latinx, which you have grounds for. I think you absolutely check that box because yeah, you know, it's not going to make, it is going to make a big difference. It's um, you still need the best LSAT you can get. You are trying to make up for a weak GPA. Um, but the combination of a strong LSAT and check that box. Yeah. I think you're going to see that you get quite a bit of boost from that box. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's cool. from Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for writing in. The next one is from Mary. Hey, y'all. Just wanted to send you a huge thank you and an update in case you ever have any other students in a similar situation. I emailed two weeks ago when my June test was unexplainably placed under review for an incident that was recorded during the test administration. Okay. I had a feeling that this was bullshit because I knew nothing happened during my test. After two long weeks of waiting with no explanation from LSAC, I finally got my score, and turns out it was bullshit. I scored 16 points higher than I did on an official test last July, a jump of 27 percentage points. Guess that must be what LSAC considers an incident. Never got an explanation or even an email from LSAC letting me know that my score had finally been released. But obviously, I don't care anymore. I'm just happy that I won't be paying for law school. Couldn't have done it without the Thinking LSAT podcast and the demon. Thank you guys, or sorry, you guys changed my life. Can't thank you enough. Um, yeah, interesting. So do you think they flagged it because of the 16-point jump? That's a very reasonable hypothesis. They you suspected know. cheating or something, so then they reviewed the video. They had to go back and carefully. review the tape super carefully. That's. I think that's about the best we can really speculate i mean i haven't yeah. heard I, I do remember like the emergency reports from people who had you know they got that email saying that their score was flagged but i haven't heard anybody say yeah it turns out that they lost my score or i had to cancel it or whatever for whatever reason so i i yeah i mean i think maybe it's just like lsac going in and reviewing big jumps in score yep or it could just be any other random nothing I'm, well, the 16 points makes a lot of sense, right? I'm sure they have some rule. It's like if it's greater than 10 points from your last official test, we're going to look at that video or something like that. Makes sense. I mean, it's also a pretty strong argument for why don't you just do the video review proctoring, which we've already been yelling about. <laughs> like, why have live proctors? Why you have, have three weeks. Proctors. Yeah. Why have live proctors? Why not just do the recorded proctor? It sounds like yeah. you're doing that anyway. Of course, we're just purely speculating, so we have no idea if that's actually what they're doing. <laughs> anyway, congratulations, Mary. That is awesome. Um, 
And yeah. it wasn't, uh, we did not change your life, Mary. You changed your life because you actually took our advice and studied your ass off and retook the LSAT and did everything right. It's not that hard. You just have to do it. Yeah. So that's excellent. Um, former student of mine, Ricky emailed in and said, wondering if your view of the bar exam is any different from your view of the LSAT. And uh, this is because of a news item from Bloomberg that says Oregon high court to consider dropping bar exam for new lawyers. Um, I don't know if you had any thoughts on this at all, Ben during COVID several state bars, um, actually like went on hiatus. Okay. And, or the bar exam went on hiatus and they just decided, Hey, you know what? If you went to law school, uh, especially certain law schools, uh, in our state, you don't need to take the bar exam. Like you're good. They basically just give you provisional, um, status and let you start practicing. Sure. Uh, Wisconsin hasn't even had a state bar exam for decades i think okay and nothing has they just have bar privilege like certain schools in wisconsin you just roll straight into legal practice um any uh, opinions about whether we should or should not retain the bar exam um i don't care if it goes away the way i look at it uh the bar exam is just a barrier to entry established by existing lawyers to inflate prices for themselves because it makes it harder to get into their industry. Um, I mean, you think about the industries that require people to take an exam or something like that. Law is one of them. There are others out there. A lot of times it seems kind of silly what industries we require people to test for and what industries do not require any sort of testing and yet seem so much more risky or whatever. So I'm personally ambivalent to it. I don't really care one way or another. I don't mind there being less lawyers either. So if we want to arbitrarily put in a thing that blocks people from becoming lawyers, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> okay. There you have it. Uh, ben Olson uh, calls out the bar exams across the country as being basically a, you know, it's guild like protection of the members of the guild. It's just, yes, a barrier. I mean, we already have three years of law school as a barrier. Uh, It does seem to me that if you graduate from law school, the law school should be good enough that you are now actually capable of practicing law. Unfortunately, that's not how it works at all. You don't learn anything in law school that actually helps you become a better practitioner. In most schools, it's just this big academic competition. And then the bar exam is this other totally separated from real legal practice. I mean, if you, no matter what area of law you want to practice in, you have to like take this stupid exam on that includes wills and trusts and, uh, and you know, the just format, like, <laughs> it's yeah, it's just another test of like your ability to jump through hoops. It's, it's weird because I mean, it's not like if someone passes the bar, you're like, Oh, well now I'm going to hire you to be my attorney. No, it's no. going to come from on the job experience. It's, yeah. It makes zero sense that lawyers are trained and tested as generalists. That makes yeah. no sense. There's no yeah. way you're going to have the same person doing your will or whatever. I mean, by the way, that shit you can just do online these days. But like you're <laughs> I mean, let's say you're doing complicated estate planning. Sure. There's no way you're going to have the same person doing complicated estate planning and your DUI defense like you'd be an idiot if you did that. And any lawyer who's worth anything would be like, no way I'm not practicing outside my actual area. 
I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm good at one thing. I don't know how to do everything, any of these other things. Exactly. Well, I've worked with enough attorneys on random issues. Um, one was uh, an estate issue with, for a family member and you know, they're an attorney and I didn't even like random questions come up and they're like, yeah, you're going to have to ask somebody else. This is my domain. Yeah. They're not even allowed to answer. They're like, I'm not an expert in that area. So you can't ask. Ironically, they're not allowed to, but they're, they're not willing to because they're not, why they don't know. Ironically, any baby lawyer who like just, you know how sometimes people go to like real low rank schools and then just immediately hang a shingle. Sure. And then they're just like, oh, I'll take on whatever matter you you bring me. I'll do anything. (laughs) Absolutely. Landlord, tenant, no problem. Criminal defense. (laughs) Sure. What? IP law? You want me to file a patent application? Sure. I could do that. And (laughs) it's like good lawyers would never do that because they yeah. know that they know nothing. That's the one yeah. thing you start learning is like, Oh my God, I know nothing about any of this. Yeah. Um, the things, you know, the thing is like, because we have the bar and the bar is allegedly what really protects consumers from bad, le- bad lawyers, which is such a fiction anyway, you know, you just like, yeah. it doesn't, they can't test. So they have a separate exam that actually tests you on ethics, but they're not testing your ethics. They're testing your knowledge of ethical rules. That's exactly right. It's like, <laughs> like okay, this is what I know I'm not supposed to do, but I'm going to promptly do it as soon as I walk out of this door. Yeah. Like, in fact, a good way to like learn scams would be to study for the, what is that? MPRE? Yeah, multi-state professional responsibility exam. A good way to learn about scams would be to just study the MPRE, and then you could learn all the different ways. Oh, I'm not supposed to do that. I wonder why I'm not supposed. Oh, I see why I'm not supposed to do that. And it's like, but the the fact that you can answer those questions correctly does not mean that you're going to actually practice ethically. The bar exam, same thing. It doesn't protect consumers at all. It's just like, did you memorize a bunch of stupid rules? I. Uh, Yeah. I mean, and then I guess what I, my main complaint is you go to law school for three damn years and you pay a ridiculous amount of money for, if you, if you're dumb enough to pay for law school, you pay a ridiculous amount of money to go to law school. And then the school is just like, they like sort of wash their hands of you. They're just, it's like, well, it's the bar exam. That's going to really determine whether you're qualified to practice law or not. You know, we just taught you how to think like a lawyer or whatever bullshit they're going to say. Yeah. Well, it just exposes how much of it is a really a, a pay for service. What is it? It's like you're, you're really paying them to give you a diploma and that's what they have to do as opposed to them saying, wait a sec, I'm not going to give you a diploma because I don't think you're good right. enough. They're not going to do that. No, it's all just signaling. Now it's all just signaling and um, the law schools don't feel obligated to really educate you or position you to where you would be a, you know, you're going to, they know you're going to learn everything on the job. They're just like, well, yeah, I mean, your firm is going to teach you how to actually practice. Yeah. So then what's the point of the bar exam? It's just another academic competition. It's just another hurdle to prevent some people. But the problem is it prevents some people from practicing who were not prevented from paying tuition. That's a big problem. That would be my vote would be like, if you can't pass the bar, then you get a refund on your tuition. Yeah. 
But that would be a really interesting financial system. Well, that they will never happen because it would change. I mean, it would just They'd show. They'd actually have to worry. Ah, oh, it shows how much of a scam this all is. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a ripoff. When you pay these people for tuition and they're not willing to guarantee that you'll ever actually be able to practice law, what are you paying $50,000 a year for? Man, it's crazy too, because the people who aren't passing in general, right, are the lowest performing students in law school. And so it's just like, if you're not doing well, if you're barely getting into law school and you're paying full freight. Yeah. And you are then vastly more likely to fail the bar exam and never practice. It's just a bad setup. That's why you have to go for free. Cause at least, you know, yep. you were good enough to be valued by some school to pay for you. And now you'd also don't carry that risk. Yeah. Anyway, thanks Ricky. Thank you, Ricky. Um, I'm not sure what Ricky was actually getting at. Wondering if your if your view of the bar exam is any different from the LSAT. Well, I don't know. I think the LSAT is a much better test of who would be good at practicing law. I mean, the, I do too. Yeah. It's a skills based test. It's like, you can carry that stuff over. I don't see how you can carry this stuff over from the bar to anything practical. The bar is like a high school or college exam where people cram, people literally cram for it. The whole industry of bar prep is built around cramming for the bar. I crammed. Did I tell you this? I crammed during the lunch break and two of the essays that I reviewed were tested on after I uh, yeah and then back. you just regurgitate it forget everything about it never use it again yep. and it, it, like what are you testing meanwhile the LSAT is testing English logic and how hard you can prepare for it over months instead of you know like weeks that people prepare for the bar exam uh, <laughs> the, L, the LSAT the LSAT actually tests lasting skills it's a skills test instead of a knowledge test. Yeah. And the knowledge to knowledge tests can be crammed for and data dumped and then you're done with it. Whereas a skills test is like, Hey, are you good at English? Are you, are you a good reader? Yeah. Or do you have a good logical mind? Can you think creatively and solve problems? Cause that's what the LSAT tests and a bar exam is like, do you know arcane rules of, um, you know, account whatever <laughs> i don't know anyway that's my view of it you want to uh wait is it my turn uh no it's your turn go i think it's mine hi this is from colette i have a question for you guys about gpas and applying to law school my major is known at my school for being more difficult than most in fact my freshman my freshman year i was told not to choose not to choose it if I wanted to go to law school because people in the major tend to have a lower GPA than many others in the School of Liberal Arts. My question is, if there is any way that the schools I apply to will know this. I'm a political economy major, which doesn't sound extraordinarily difficult to people that don't know much about it. Would it be a good idea to get a letter of rec from my advisor? to explain some of this or another way of approaching it. My GPA is by no means horrible, 3.7, but it's hard seeing friends in easier majors that will be applying to law schools with 3.9 to 3.4, or sorry, 4.0s. Thanks for your help. My immediate reaction to this is if it is in fact harder to perform in this major, then 
I would f- find out where you rank percentile-wise yeah. in that major and then report that in an addendum. Because if you're right, then you're going to be in the high, high up there. If you're wrong, then you don't have any business bringing this up. Lawyers are driven by facts. Present the factual information. You can keep all the editorialization out of it. Just say in a one or two sentence addendum, uh, 3.7 in the political economy major is number two out of 350 students or something like that. Think about what that says. There's no argumentation. There's no explaining. It's like I am in the top of my class for my degree. Let the reader make their own... um, make their own conclusions. Now, if you do get one of your letters, I mean, you have to get letters of recommendation. Having a letter of recommendation from a department advisor seems probably pretty smart in this case, because the department advisor knows better than anybody else how good a 3.7 actually is. And they might be able to put something in their letter of recommendation. I wouldn't tell them exactly what to say though, because if it'll, it'll be obvious that you guys are both saying exactly the same thing, it'll like look kind of fake. But uh, I do think that that letter would make a lot of sense. Um, I, I also just don't think too seriously about any of this because it's not going to matter that much. They're going to report you as a 3.7 to ABA and to the world. And um, that advice that you ignored when you were a freshman was probably good advice. If you were sure that you wanted to go to law school, you probably should not have picked a hard major because the game we're playing here, and this is just another thing that like shows what a get, what a scam the whole thing is, right? It's like, yeah. you know, actually really law schools would have preferred that you just majored in political science instead of political economy and got a 4.0 instead of a 3.7 because then they would get to report you as a 4.0 and <laughs> like it just looks better on the public data and in US News and World Report. So yeah. Um, that sucks. And if you're listening to this and you're a freshman in college, you should probably, if you're sure that you want to go to law school, you should probably be protecting your GPA at all costs. Yeah. Cause it's worth tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars in law school scholarships. Anyway, I guess another point to make here is like, look at Colette worrying about her 3.7. <laughs> you know, we have, we have hundreds of students with 3.2s who pat themselves on the back. Yeah. And then we have the lawyers of the world like Colette who are really worried about their 3.7. Yeah. Which sounds like it was awful damn good in a really hard major. Yeah. Um the world everybody's getting into is intensely it's intensely competitive and there's just so many killers like Colette. <laughs> You're going to be fine, Colette. If you could go back and give yourself advice when you were a freshman, you should have taken easier classes, but you're going to do just fine with that 3.7. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for writing in. Next one. Hey, Ben and Nathan, I'm a big fan of the podcast and have been listening since I started thinking about law school back in 2019. I've been studying for the LSAT for about three months now, and I'm prepared to take it in August. My trouble is that I graduated from undergrad in December of 2020 and still haven't found a full-time job. I've sent in hundreds of applications. Uh, that doesn't sound good. Yeah, you're going to want to leave that fact out of, don't ever tell anybody that. And done dozens of interviews. 
but nothing has panned out yet. Don't share that information either. Well, sorry, let me clarify by what I mean. That doesn't sound good. If your goal is to get a job, I don't think you should use the shotgun approach of let me throw out as many applications as I can. I would submit better applications to better jobs, to jobs that are more likely to win for you. And realize that most jobs are gotten through connections, not through resume drops. Yeah. You know, um, we notice it all the time. Kids these days, they love to send an email or do something online instead of like working their connections, picking up the phone, that type of thing. And, you know, if you're just on monster.com or Craigslist or whatever it is these days, and you're just dropping hundreds of applications, yeah, there's thousands of other people doing that exact same thing. And it's just, that is not a good numbers game to play. Nope. It's a big waste of time. Smooth, smooth. I mean, dozens of interviews. Yeah. That's not good. You know, the last job I had been the last real job I had, um, Mm. full-time job, yeah. They made me come in. I swear to God, I came in for five interviews. Wow. Like actually came to the office five times as if they were wow. like testing. Okay. Is this dude actually going to show up for work? Or well, it's I weird, don't know. Cause what if you drag hell? it out that long, it's like, what kind of candidates are you going to end up with? Ones that are willing to keep coming back. Right. I think that maybe that's what they wanted. Actually. They were like, let's Which see if odd. this guy I will really be that. our bitch. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I did cause I didn't have a job and I was like, whatever, <laughs> but I mean that job, I did not get that through a resume dro- drop either. I got that because yeah. I had a friend who worked there Yeah, yeah. and I mean, I can't imagine going to dozens of interviews. Yeah. At some point I think you just got to say, Hey, listen, this is the last time I'm coming in for an interview. And if they say no to that, fine, stop wasting my time. I mean, if these are dozens of interviews at 12 different places or dozens of different places, even then though, it's like, you're not applying to the right jobs. You need to think more carefully about what job you want, go after it and really nail it. Maybe you do that for three or four jobs and you'll get one of them. The question here is going to be about addendums, right? The longer I've gone without employment, the more it makes me want to apply this upcoming cycle so I can have something to latch on to. If you knock it out of the park in August, fine. Though I can't imagine submitting my apps when I've only had a job for a month or two or unemployed would lead to the best results. When graduating, I was planning on one to two years of work experience, but I never thought I would go this long without finding something. Any advice or words of wisdom would be greatly appreciated. S from Michigan. Thank you. I'm worried the S is applying quickly to resolve a different problem than the main purpose of applying. And that is to go to law school and become an attorney. Yeah, they don't give a shit. They they take tons of applicants straight out of law, straight out of undergrad. K through JD yeah. is a very common thing. Even at the highest even at Harvard, Stanford, Yale, they admit 21-year-olds straight out of undergrad all the time. Yeah. So why are you worried about lack of work experience? Work experience is good. It looks good on your application and it's just good for you generally. Yeah. But it's not at all necessary. And I mean, law school, I always say it is wizard school for lawyers. Like you're going to go learn magic incantations and it's like you can't practice law unless you go through the wizard school. But once you go through the wizard school, then you've gone through wizard school. 
Yeah. And now, I mean, not to say that you're actually able to practice, but you can take the bar and get a job and then learn how to practice. Yeah. And so your previous work experience just doesn't have anything to do with those magical incantations. So I just don't think it matters. Plus COVID. Like if you're worried about how it looks on your application, COVID, that's how everybody's application looks right now. Yeah. I don't know. Any, any uh, other advice for S? Possibly really focus on a couple jobs that seem like a good fit for you and go get them so that you can remove this motivation in your life to go to law school merely to fill a void. Like, yeah. right? She said she wants to latch on to something. That's not a good reason to go to law school. If you get a job and you like your job and you still want to go to law school, well, then maybe you should go. Yeah. I. Why can't... I, I also don't believe that you can't get a job in a law firm. Like, and, and it's... I mean, yeah, it's not going to pay well. But I, it doesn't... I just can't believe that you can't go get a job in a law firm to figure out whether you really want to practice law. Yeah. Um, they're always looking for young people to overwork and underpay. And I think that would, yeah, like Ben said, keep you from rushing into law school before you really know what you're getting yourself into. I think you're thinking about it like just the totally wrong way. I mean, you just should not go to law school unless you have a burning desire to practice law and you're not going to be satisfied with anything else. And I don't think you can possibly know that unless you've been around lawyer shit. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thanks, um, S. Yep. The next one is from Omar. Hi, all. I feel like this could be a decent question for the podcast. Okay. Do you have any basic guidance on how to divide the practice tests. Yeah, I've been wondering I've about this. I've limited my drilling to the first 30 tests, but I want to know how I should be dividing the remaining tests between timed sections, tests, and experimentals. Can Thanks I for the guidance. Can I jump in first? Yeah. Doesn't matter. Who gives a shit? They're all the same. Do tests, you know, do do drilling, do timed tests, do timed sections, learn as much as you can. Don't be so precious about saving tests and being all super careful about it. That said, the demon does it by default. And yeah. um, so that's why I put this on the agenda, Ben, because I wanted to hear you just basically explain what the demon does automatically. That's right. So to prevent the demon from randomly choosing questions from tests that you may want to take without having seen any of the questions. We do allocate tests to drilling, to time sections, to tests, and even to experimentals. But there's just, it's, they're actually evenly allocated. So all I did is I took every block of 10 tests and I assigned three to drilling, three to time sections, three to tests, one to experimental. And that way you get a mix of everything for everything. Perfect. So when you're drilling, you're not doing like just older questions. Not that that matters, but you're not. People so you don't need to that. change the settings, Omar, in the demon at all. Just use the demon. 
default settings and it's going to give you a random selection every time you drill it's going to give you questions from prep test one through 90 when you do time sections it's going to give you sections from prep test one through i keep saying 90 but it's really 89 right and every time you um do time tests even with experimental sections it's just going to give you a broad spectrum and you're not going to cover the same stuff twice because demon exactly. has it all and then separated. once you get familiar with it and you want to tweak it fine but just click on test settings if you've messed with anything and click reset and it'll go back to the defaults and you'll have an even mix for all the different things which is about what you should be doing anyway great sounds good um i do want to look at this email okay. and news story from Bree. I've got cool. the, it's like slightly out of order on the agenda, but um, I think you can figure it out. Uh, I'll read. It says, good morning. Did you happen to read this article? It came across my Apple news feed yesterday. If you haven't read it, can you please do so and let me know your thoughts? I plan to apply for the 2023 school year in order to give myself time to score in the 170s. I like that plan. And then she just wants to know what we think about these uh, claims. Okay. So it's in this, uh, again, Bloomberg. Uh, the headline is law school application surge means nightmare contest for slots. The subhead says boom fueled by lockdown. Social justice movement brings tougher competition for aspiring lawyers and tricky admissions decisions from schools. Um, I did skim through the article. I thought that it did a decent job of summing up um, all the new information about the cycle. This is from uh, mid-July. Okay. Um, first, you want to look, maybe we'll go scan through this. Uh, yeah. Had you seen this chart before? No. Paper chase? Applications are up sharply at U.S. schools. Okay. Um, no, it does show, It's this uh, chart, it's a bar chart. It goes back to 2001. Yeah. Um, the increase between 2020 and 2021 is the biggest increase on the uh, entire chart, 20 year chart. Um, it's a very big step up. Still 125,000 lower than the heyday yeah. of 2010. That's what I wanted to, what I really wanted to, to point out here is that in 2004, there were. Um, almost a hundred thousand more applications than in 2021. And in 2004, 2005, same thing, six, seven, eight, basically the same thing. Then financial crisis of 2008, then there was yep. a, an uptick there in 2009 and 2010. So looking at this chart, I mean, yeah, there was a big step up in the number of applications, but we're coming off of like a seven or eight or nine year lull. Yeah. In applications. Almost half as many people were applying to law school in 2015 as they were in 2010. Yeah. So Almost that was half. I didn't even realize. It's so crazy because our careers were like building at that same time. Yeah. You know, we were like building yeah. our businesses independently in the middle of a 50% downturn in our industry. That's really interesting. <laughs> I started my business at like the worst possible time. Um, yeah, exactly. And uh, anyway, so it's been kind of slowly increasing, I guess, since 2015. And then the big step up in 2021. So, yes, it was an extremely competitive cycle, especially because of all those deferrals. 
mm-hmm. the COVID deferrals and the increase in applications. Um, it, it was a super competitive cycle. Uh, scrolling down further in this story, um, I guess this is just another way of looking this low number of law school applicants has hit its highest level since 2011 is wait a second. Is that the same chart? Oh, the chart we were looking at is number of applications. And then this line Mm. chart further down is number of applicants. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's, but it's basically exactly the same. Yeah. Okay. People aren't applying more to more schools or something. Yeah, it does. Oh, that's really an interesting thing to think about. 2021, there were 474,000 applications from hmm. 69,000 applicants. Okay. Whoa. Okay. So on average, Ben, people are applying to like six or seven schools. Yeah. Okay. And of We'd course, that's at least 10. Well, that's some suckers. Many, many. That's got to be a bimodal distribution. Like, that I bet the distribution of applicants, sorry, applications per schools. Somebody needs to do this for me. Make a chart that yeah. overlays applications per applicant with the salary distribution of uh, first year lawyers. Yeah. So because you're saying as the first year lawyer, <laughs> it's going to be the same salary goes up. The number of applications, the number of schools that they applied to almost certainly went up. <laughs> well, and it's as the same your salary goes down. Yeah. I mean, I just want to see a picture office. of the distributions because yeah. I'm sure that the distributions look very similar and it's going to be the same people doing it, even though that's not exactly what the distributions really say. Right. The yeah, distributions yeah. are just going to be like, well, there were very few people who applied to many, many schools. And then there were most people who applied to very few schools. Yeah. Just like the distribution for salaries is going to be, there's a very few people who make a lot of money. And then there's most people who make a little bit of money. Yeah, <laughs> That's going to be exactly the same, but that, but that is interesting. So the mean is six or seven applications. Yeah. Um, but that's going to be because some people apply to 30 schools and then most people apply to two schools. Uh, you know, which camp we want you in if you're going to not yeah. pay for law school. All right. What else we got down here? Um, oh, okay. By the way, that that uh, that ratio has yeah. changed since 2010. So of applications per applicant. Yeah, about yeah. six or seven is the average, but we want you to be above average. We want you to be an yeah. above average lawyer. We want you to apply to an above average number of law schools. Yeah. Ten at least. Okay. Well, these numbers make a lot more sense because I was like, wow, that's a lot of application, applicants. But yeah, okay. So it's 475,000 applications submitted by 69,000 applicants. Yep. Which is low, right? Considering that about 120,000 people take the LSAT each year, or is that administrations? Now I'm getting my numbers mixed up. But uh when we scroll down a little further, we get to this uh chart that they have cleverly titled All Rise. And it says applicants LSAT scores shifted higher this admission cycle. And that's a bar chart comparing um, last year's scores to this year's scores. And we've talked about this before on the show, but we see twice as many people scoring 175 to 180. We see about a 50% increase in people scoring 170 to 174. We see about a 33% increase in 165s to 169s. 
another 25% increase in 160s to 164s. So across the board, in every you know tranche, people are scoring higher on the LSAT. Yep. Uh, which <laughs> matters a lot, especially at the top schools, because they're just you know they're they're skimming the cream of the crop. And if you're not the cream of the crop, this last cycle, you're not, you're just not getting good offers. It was an extremely difficult cycle for a lot of reasons, because it's not just the increase in applications. It's also specifically lots of people doing really well on the LSAT. Yeah. I can't believe who we said no to this year, said Harvard Law School's admissions chief. That should have been whom. Um... That would have sounded really awful, though, if they would have said whom. Yeah, anyway, they said that whom is kind of fading these days. Is it? We're just going to yeah. go with who instead? Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. I think that's about it for that news article. We will post a link to that on the show notes at thinkinglsat.com. Uh, it was a real nasty cycle. And if you didn't get the offers you deserve, you should be reapplying next cycle or even the cycle after that. I have a feeling that they're going to be processing the excess applicants even into this next cycle. Sure. I mean, I do know people who have deferred. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, and I mean, they're actually paying people to take deferrals. So I think we're in for another very competitive cycle for people who want to start law school in 2022. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for saying that in Bree. That's helpful. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, Francis. This is the next email. Yep. Hey guys, I wanted to run by a piece of advice that Manhattan Prep advocates for in one of their prep books. Okay. The prep book said not said to not concern yourself with fully understanding background information information in a passage. Okay, so you're going to decide what that background information is and then decide not to fully understand it. Trying to extensively depict everything in the passage is time-consuming while taking practice tests and sections. I was curious what your response would be for those at Manhattan Prep who say, do not try to fully understand everything within the background information. I picked this book up to gain a different perspective on RC specifically. Reading comp. Reactions? I think it's a terrible tip for exactly the reason you specify. How do you know what back, what is the background information and what is the important information? There's only 60 lines there. This idea that we can't actually comprehend the reading comprehension is the exact opposite of our approach at LSAT demon. I mean, please do not study with the LSAT demon. If you're not committed to the idea that you're going to actually be able to understand the words on the page, we can't help you. If you don't want to understand it, we cannot help you. So, and I just don't, I don't get it. All these prep companies that are like, oh yeah, no, no, you're going to have to skim that. You're going to have to ignore that. You're going to have to just not understand that. Or, or (laughs) like they do the same thing with LR question types, right? Oh, there's certain question types that you're just going to be bad at. Yeah. There's certain game types that you're just going to be bad at. You're going to skip those and do the stuff that you're good at. Fuck that. We're going to be good at all of it. Well, it's weird. You know, I had the free class last night and we did a reading comp passage and... (laughs) I've said this a million times, but as I'm saying it again, I'm just, 
I think hopefully convincing the class and convincing myself, you know, someone's asking this same question, like what information can I ignore? What do I, what, what do I have to memorize? And I'm like, look, we're talking about 15 sentences here, 15 sentences. You, you want to take some of these out? Like how hard can this be? This whole exercise is going to be over in eight minutes and you're worried about what you remember. Um, you will remember this stuff. I think the main problem stems from the fact that people spend about 20% of their time reading the passage and 80% of their time answering the questions, whereas I spend about 50% of my time reading the passage, 50% of my time answering the questions. The, the better you understand the passage, the easier the questions are going to get. Your accuracy is going to go up and your speed is going to go up because you're going to be able to recognize garbage answers for the garbage that they are. If you don't understand the passage, then you're going to be hopeless in the answer choices. Hope, you know, just like, oh boy, B looks good and C looks good. And, but it could be E and you're like comparing wrong answers to one another. Yeah. It's not good. It's just not going to be a successful way of doing this test. I feel like a lot of the big prep out there seems to be designed to get people to 155. You know, like, well, you can skim it. You can half-ass it. You can skip a lot of it. And we can get you from a, oh, you started at a at a 147. Okay, you qualify for our seven-point point increase guarantee. And, you know, we can get you from a 147 to a 155. And at the demon, we don't even think we've helped you. If we get you from a 147 to a 155, like if you start at a 147, we're going to go great. That's an awesome score. Let's get you to 170. 170. I mean, like not, not everybody. We can't guarantee that, but that's certainly the goal. That's the goal. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, uh, the other thing too is last night, Someone asked, they said, I sometimes I understand the first part of the answer choice, but I don't understand the second half. And I'm wondering what words I should be looking for. <laughs> and I was like, okay, look, if you don't understand part of an answer choice and you think that might be correct, you it's a great opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to slow down and try to understand it because not only will you unlock whether or not that answer is correct or not, but it will unlock everything else on the test because all the test really is, is a test of reading comprehension. So if you learn to understand things that you don't understand now, then your score will increase everywhere, not just on that question. I think, I think what these big prep companies thrive on and probably are deceived into thinking that they're being helpful is that when you give someone some tip like, hey, look for this word or that word and they get an answer right because of that tip they feel like they've just been given something amazing like some insight but the reality is that's not the actual way to get better it just happened to work for that question and it's not going to work it's going to go against you on other questions but you see that and you remember that and you think oh wow i just got something i got a i got an insight and so those are easy to sell, right? They they seem clearly to me to be marketing companies, not actual LSAT education companies. I mean, their focus is not on actually understanding. Yeah. Our focus is convincing you that the LSAT is in fact easy. It, not, not to say it's not hard work, 
but it is easy in that it makes perfect sense if you just read it carefully and figure it out. It makes perfect sense. Our job is to help the real light bulb. We want the we want to actually see, oh, I actually do understand. That's our whole approach to reading comprehension. And these people focusing so much on the parts that you're not going to understand. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It's the antithesis of what we do. Yeah. Um, I, Francis says, I picked this book up to gain a different perspective on reading comp specifically. I, I think you should put that book down. I don't think that that's helping you. I mean, or you should just go all in on Manhattan prep and don't study with the demon because that, that pick a guru, I guess is what I'm saying, because that is a exactly, that is precisely opposite of what we would recommend. And it kind of seems like most stuff we see out there is precisely opposite of what we would recommend. Yeah. It's like, you know, before you send in a pearls versus turd, unless you just want to make fun of, obviously bad advice and that's fine too but you know the question is is this related to really understanding the test or not if it's yeah. not related to really understanding the test it is not a pearl yep plain and simple i mean it's just the only thing we care about is actually understanding this shit i don't know how many how many different ways i can say that but all right <laughs> <laughs> um maybe one more yep one more and we'll wrap it up go ahead Okay. Hey, Nathan and Ben, I just listened to the first episode of El Sad Demon Daily. Oh, that's our other podcast. Our other podcast. That's right. And it comes out every day, Monday through Friday. Five days a Where week, you first talk? thing in the morning. El Sad Demon first Daily. First thing in the morning. Yep. 4 a.m., right? Or something like that. 4 a.m. East Coast. <laughs> so it's like you might be able to listen to it before you go to bed on the West Coast. But yeah, yeah. it's it's out uh, very early, Monday through Friday. Cool. So in this first episode where you talk about the future of online law school and flex JD degrees, I live and hope to practice law in Alaska, but there are no law schools in my state. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I guess I shouldn't be that surprised, but I did not know that. There's um, just not a lot in Alaska. Yeah, period. I, guess, I have seven law schools right around, like within, <laughs> yeah. you know, spitting distance. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's too many. Um, there are no law schools in my state, so the idea of doing law school online sounds great. I understand that attending school online is always going to be different than in person, but I'm worried about the loss of opportunities that I would gain by attending in person, as well as if an online degree would be seen as lesser in any way. What do you think? What are you, what's your, what are you going to practice? I mean, what, like... That's not a question for us. It's a question for lawyers in Alaska who practice the kind of law that you want to practice. If there are no law schools in Alaska, where and do Alaskan lawyers come from? No lawyers. <laughs> well, if imagine, there's no but... jobs for lawyers in Alaska, then I think you have a different issue. Yeah. Um, but no, Z says, I live and hope to practice law in Alaska. Okay, go talk to Alaskan lawyers. I you know? imagine that if there are no law schools there, there is not a lot of concern about whether your degree is online or well, not. Well, 
I agree, but chain up the sled dogs and take them down to the one lawyer in your town and go <laughs> ask that guy or girl, dude, what, how do you do this? What do you do to be a lawyer in Alaska? Does it matter if I, I mean, you clearly don't, there's no requirement to get your JD in Alaska. My dude, guess Nathan, is you just pissed off our two Alaskan listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Cause I made a sled dog joke. I think <laughs> that they probably appreciate the sled dog joke. Um, yeah, I, it, it, it seems to me that it's probably not going to matter at all. We have been speculating about the increase in online law school. That's going to continue. I'd be, I'd bet everything on that. There's no way that's not going to continue everything your entire portfolio yes yes i, I sometimes you got to take big risks but i would be <laughs> more, more than willing to bet my house on there it will be an increase in online jd not a decrease i well, mean that's an increase i mean that's yeah i agree with that that's what i'm saying it's a no-brainer an increase an increase that's like the weakest claim ever though i didn't say it was a bold claim i said i'm willing to bet everything on it <laughs> That's precisely because it's not a bold claim. And that's point, why I won this bet. <laughs> yes. Point is, um, for Z, I, you got to ask local lawyers, um, you know, as far as like a lot, we get these questions a lot. I'm worried about the loss of opportunities that I might gain by attending in person. Yeah. But those opportunities, I mean, what are you going to do? Go to Seattle law school? Seattle University Law School, it's a, it's a local regional school, very low ranked in Seattle. Yeah. You're going to get opportunities there, but those opportunities are going to be significantly limited, uh, limited to Seattle. Yeah. If you go to University of Washington, also in Seattle, much more prestigious law school, but still, I don't know that that degree swings a whole lot of weight outside of Washington. Do you ever hear people saying how much they want to go to UW? No, there's 20 other law schools that they would rather go to across the country. Yeah. So, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, maybe that degree makes people, you know, impresses people in Anchorage. My guess is practicing law in Alaska is not like you don't, I, who knows? I mean, but I guess there's big firms in Anchorage, huh? Must be. Think. There's got to be like oil companies. Right. That's right? what I was immediately thinking. Like there's probably a whole lot of DUI attorneys and a whole lot of like oil attorneys. <laughs> and I mean, those are two very different types of lawyers, by the way. You can clearly go to a regional school if you want to do criminal defense. Um if you want to practice billion dollar oil matters, then maybe you do need to go to like a T14 school to get that job or at a big firm. Go online to a big school. Think a bigger school would offer an online program. Well, we're again with my wild speculations, but I'm, you know, I'm looking at you, Washington university in St. Louis. Um, tell me about your flex JD shit i want to know more about those programs because hungry upstart schools just outside the top 14 that wish they were in the top 14 those same schools that always give unsolicited scholarship offers to students across the country 
Yeah. Again, Washington University in St. Louis. Like that type of school seems like they have a big opportunity to create a national, a truly national law school. Ironically, it would be truly national if you that yeah. if you just like went online, then you really would a be good a online tr- program. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fuck yeah, which I'm sure yeah. they would do because they've been like hovering right outside the top 14 for 10 years. You know, they're yeah. or seems like they're just right there knocking on the door. And uh, what they need to do is create an online because, I mean, that's the 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 people from both coasts are like, well, I got this offer. They always it's always a joke to them. Well, I got this offer from Washington University in St. Louis. (laughs) It's a full ride offer. They're ranked 17th in the country. Yeah. But who's going to go live in St. Louis for three years? And, you know, if you if they made it so that you don't have to actually live in St. Louis, but you could still get that degree. I think that that would be very competitive in the market yeah yeah okay should we wrap it up yeah let's wrap it up um all right if you have any questions for us email us at help at thinking if you have questions about lsat demon email help at lsatdemon.com just a quick announcement nathan has a class for demon free students every week thursday at 4 p.m pacific 7 p.m eastern right yeah on thursdays kind of it's about the time but yeah yep four pacific seven eastern it's uh, one of my favorite hours of the entire week you can come ask any question about uh, lsat prep or even law school admissions all you need is a demon free account yeah that was episode 308 of the thinking lsat podcast thanks all y'all for listening nice knowing you don't pay for lost